0: This episode of the Brax McCoy Show, I sat down with Joe Clements. He used to work in the Senate and he now runs a consulting firm down in Florida. He's a wealth of knowledge and just one really smart guy. We cover 30 by 30 ag related issues and the meaning of conservation in a modern sense. I hope you guys enjoy the show. But before we get started, I want to take a minute to say thank you. In the very first episode of the Braxton McCoy Show, I said it'd be super cool if we could get to 100 reviews on iTunes in the first week, and we did that, which is just amazing. I really didn't think we were going to do it, but we did, so thank y'all. But you're not off the hook. Please keep leaving them. It's going to help us a whole bunch, and if we can hit 300, we're going to be trending, and who doesn't want that? Thank y'all. Enjoy the show. All right, I'm Brax McCoy, and I'm here with Joe Clements. I hope I'm saying your last name right.
1: Uh, Clements, yeah, you, Clements. you got that extra <laughs> syllable in there for me. <laughs> that might that might actually just be the Rocky Mountain yeah. draw thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, why don't you tell us who you are? Uh, we're going to talk about thirty by thirty and ag issues for everybody who's tuned in, but why don't you tell us who you are and why you're on the show?
1: Sure, I'm a I'm a media and marketing consultant. I run a company headquartered in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, one of our practice areas is ag and natural resources, heavily centered in the southeast, but we've done we've done things uh, across the country. My background uh, worked in the U.S. Senate uh, when I was out of college. Worked for seven years for the Florida Legislature, uh, and in between those stints, I was working in political campaigns. Uh, towards the end of my time in the Florida Legislature, after the twenty fourteen Campaign cycle and in political world, people measure their life in cycles, uh, two year two year increments. Uh, I had a a, somebody I had worked with before that seemed like they'd make a great business partner. I knew I wanted to start a business, and so um, we founded our company here, Strategic Digital Services. Uh, And one one of our first big clients was a a major ad client here in Florida. Uh, One of our second big clients was the incumbent. Uh, commissioner of agriculture here in the state of Florida. So pretty quickly and through my background in the Florida house, started picking up other clients with Ag Connections. And so just started learning a lot uh, about the industry, about the marketplace and about the ongoing onslaught of political challenges facing the industry. So one of my uh, areas of expertise and areas of focus is how do we communicate the importance of agriculture, the importance of farming, the importance of ranching, To a country that is largely now three to four generations disconnected from that Uh, food comes from the grocery store food doesn't come from the farm in in their mind. Yeah, you know,
0: a good friend of mine and I talk about this all the time, but I wonder how much of this really uh how much of the problems that the Agnistry faces are are just because of what you just laid out there where we really are three or four generations now away from uh you know our kids are no longer connected to the farm in any way like my, for mm-hmm. example my grandfather he when he went to World War II, he and his brother sold most of their ranch after they got back, and then went and worked in the city. Then they ended up buying a little bit more, but uh, again back home. But they, you know, that generation was sort of maintained that tie. And then after that, you know, but but even that for them was for their generation was sort of rare. Um, but mm-hmm. my my father's generation, I mean, they most of them, you know, the majority of those people don't have any ties at all to ag. And so when these things like thirty by thirty come up. It just sounds like it. It sounds like some crazy reptilian guy conspiracy, and some people either tune out, or the right people either tune out, and the wrong people tune in, or it's easy to kind of dismiss if you're more of a middle of the road, you know, kind of moderate thinking. The line person.
1: between brilliant strategy and conspiracy theory is very, very thin. Yeah, <laughs> uh, one of the things I don't look most people when you're just out in normal life, they're not schemers. They're not like they're not the type of people that spend all day at like a whiteboard, like drafting a memo to come up with this grand plan. But I promise you, those people exist. And I'm like, I'm good at it. Like I'm a good strategic planner. There are people who are just master level strategic planners out there. They work in corporate America, and they work in politics, and and they work everywhere. Um, and and they're just brilliantly good at putting together campaigns that last for years and encompass all sorts of domains, uh, government, media, advertising, uh, commodities pricing, all this stuff. Um, And so when you bring things like this up with people, it sounds pie in the sky because it almost sounds too grand, right? But what you see, a lot of times if I said, hey, Elon Musk is going to put a guy on Mars. Like if I told you that 15 years ago, that's insane. Not even the government can do that. But now we're probably at the cusp of Elon. He's able to put a string of satellites, you know, in orbit right now. Um, So like people who are big thinkers, big planners, we tend to underestimate their role in society. Now society is complicated and things emerge and things happen, but like human beings, one of the rare things about us is we can put our minds to something and we can make big things happen over time. And that that happens in, in our society and especially in a free society where someone besides the government is allowed to engage in that behavior.
0: Wow. There's a, there's a lot of places to go from there. So this, let's just focus on 30 by 30 for a second. Uh, one of, one of my biggest issues, well, in fact, it kind of illustrates your point. The The messaging surrounding 30 by 30 is that, well, it's 30% of land and 30% of water are going to uh, sort of be hammered into this uh, to meet this quote unquote protection requirement that the, the government has laid out and near as i can tell the only lands that meet that metric right now are wilderness with a capital w and people in the east probably don't have a lot of that but out here it would be there are certain areas like the bob marshall or the frank church wilderness that's wilderness with Can't the take capital motorized
1: w. vehicle mm-hmm. no
0: motorized vehicle nothing with oil none of that kind of stuff um foot or horse traffic only basically uh so that's one and then another is national parks, which is you know, I think kind of almost goes without saying. And then the third is national monuments. And I had made the mistake on the Jesse Kelly show of assuming that they also included tribal lands in there, but they really don't. I read another article later on that said tribal lands mm-hmm. are not counted in this at all. So it's it's those three things. So monuments, uh wilderness with the capital W and national parks. So when you hear something like that uh f- f- to me, I already look around and go well, I know what happens to monuments. If you take Utah for example, I believe six of their seven national parks started as monuments. So monuments are a a step on the you know the incrementalist ladder t- toward national parks, which means no more ranching, no more, uh, grazing of any kind uh you know limited foot traffic cuz e- even on some monuments in utah uh there's already permits you know so it's it's not you just can't go hike around just because you want to you have to give a perm, get a permit on this is on certain they they have their own requirements right um right here this kind of stuff and i go okay so really what you want is 30% of this country to be locked up like yellowstone take it a step further when i'm talking about the the messaging that surrounds it is they're selling it as 30 by 30 because 30 doesn't sound as bad as 50. But really what they want is 50%, fully 50% of the, the land in America locked up in this way by 2050, which is only 29 years away, right? I mean, this is right around the corner, you know?
1: Yeah, our, our lifetimes, hopefully, right. you know, we'll, we'll vote <laughs> 2050. So uh, I don't know if you're a fan of the show Yellowstone, but, in season one, uh, Tyler Sheridan, who's the writer who I think has done some of the best you know w- fictional works about the modern west the the main character and his son are having this discussion as they as they walk outside of their ranch, and there's somebody trying to force them to sell part of the ranch, and the son says, "Dad, we just don't have leverage." Uh, and the dad, who's the main character, turns around and says, son leverage is knowing that if you had all the money in the world this is what you'd buy the thing we have with land in the united states is everybody knows that if you had all the money in the world you would go buy some of these just beautiful amazing pieces of land we have here in the united states and specifically in the west so we we see this happening today in a couple of ways. right? We see, especially over the last year, the massive influx of people into the Intermountain West, mostly off the West Coast. But if you look at uh, Bozeman, Montana, uh, you look at Helena, you look at Park City, you look at Colorado, a ton of people pouring into those places, driving up housing prices. Because as soon as they could escape, as soon as they could leave the city, they knew where they wanted to be. And I think the West for millennials is what Florida was for boomers. That's mm. where when millennials can shake free, that's where they're heading. So there, there's a land rush uh, in, in the West. And I think even that to a similar extent, that is happening in the East as people are freed from cities through remote work. I think uh, remote work is doing what the railroad did uh, to, say, the West in the 1800s. It's opening up for, for settlement, uh, but for a much broader settlement and, and an urbanization. So, you know, then the interesting thing that you see is we lived in this urbanized society. But because we live in this urbanized society, the desire for land and space uh, didn't leave the human soul. Right. It's still there. And so we have this social uh, kind of collective idea about like we all want land. We we know land needs to be protected in some way. Like, you know, the the rancher and and the hardest core environmentalist at at this core have the same idea that like they they don't want to see skyscrapers on that on that land. Now, you know, maybe at some point there's some ranchers and and they want to sell and get out and the skyscraper, the neighborhood becomes a a good exit plan. But for the most part, there's a desire to protect land. So then we go into, you know, how, how do we protect that land? And this debate is when when Thomas Jefferson decided on sending Lewis and Clark West and the Louisiana Purchase uh the the west opened and there's been this rush for land and how do we allocate it and what do we do with it and it's been happening here ever since and so where we've arrived at now is there's this idea conceptually that uh the population is going to keep growing and growing and growing and people are going to keep spreading out and if we let it go on indefinitely eventually there will just be no more that you know where where has our you know, eight generations ago, they extirpated the wildlife, uh, we will have seated in like extirpating any of the wilds from the country we will just be spread out and suburban sprawl everywhere. And how do we protect that? So pulling down to 30 for 30, the idea is, well, let's put together this ambitious plan. And let's just lock up some of that land forever. So it can never be changed. And this is where the debate comes in is whose land gets locked up? How do we get it? And then what do we consider to be quote, conservation, unquote? What what counts for that? And I think the biggest part of this debate is, you know, partially whose land gets used, but then partially what can it be used for? Right? Because you have at the hardest core edges of the environmentalist movement, I think it's fundamentally anti human. And so they would see any human use at all has like not not being enough conservation, you just want to block it off. And you let people go to the edge and stare in like, mm. wow, there's no human here, it's perfectly natural. Um, and then you have users, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, ranching or, uh, you know, even extraction that say, we need to be able to use these natural resources. It's how we push our society forward, it provides the the raw materials we need to be um, free and independent. And that includes critically, our food production. And that's why I think this all comes down to at, at the end, and we'll see this play out over the decade, is how do we get our food and where does our food come from? So and uh, I just had a uh, lot colloquy there. So no, to- that was,
0: yeah. was actually excellent. You hit on a lot of things that I thought were interesting, I particularly the railroad comparison. Um, yeah. So a person like me in my situation, the, the guys I talked to around, you know, at I run a horse farm and I raise a little bit of cattle, but I make most of my money off horses, but my friends are mostly cattlemen. And so we sit sit around and talk. What they will always say is, well, where the heck do they think the food's going to come from? And I I understand I like to make that joke on Twitter all the time because a lot of the people who are talking on Twitter really don't understand it, but the people who are strategizing do. And their answer is synthetic meat and micro farming. So mm-hmm. near as I can tell, anyway. And yeah. the problem that we have as people who are, in in my opinion, uh traditional conservationists is that that actually can work. And it's worth admitting that uh up front rather than trying to mm-hmm. fight the lie. So it it is possible to live off of synthetic meat. It absolutely is, and micro far- farms do work. It's working very well in California. So it is possible to produce enough food. The question is, do we still care? And it, to me, the question is, do do we still value that man to land uh, connection? It, mm-hmm. Is it something more than just you know a quaint notion of days gone by? You know, and I think it is, but you know, they don't care what I think. So, you know, I guess it's, it's our job to try to convince the people who vote that that thing mm-hmm. still matters, you know.
1: One of the things that's happened socially that hasn't, in previous generations, people thought of food as this thing that was for nutrition and pleasure, and that's why you would eat. Over, it's really probably been the last, you know, since the 60s, but really accelerated over the past 10 to 15 years, is now we see food as this moral decision, right? It's at this intersection of like climate change and cow farts and animal cruelty and conservation. It sits on top of all these things. And then at the end, it goes into our body. And so we're treating it as if uh, the food you eat has this moral element attached to it. And that's how food is sold to consumers now. So consumers view their food, you know, cage-free, organic, grass-fed, uh, humanely raised. We have all these preferences that didn't exist previously because we just were trying to eat. So into, into this, what what is happening is we're injecting this preference, uh, this awareness of where food comes from and how it's grown. And what I think is, is missed by a lot of people in uh, – you know, traditional food production is the consumer's preference, you know, when you push just moral into its conclusion, is they want as little of an agricultural footprint as possible to exist. Because there's this conception in the in the environmental movement that agriculture represents a moral harm. And so you really want it to be as little as possible in terms of its physical presence. And so Uh, you know synthetic meat is preferable if you can compress a farm into like an old office tower and vertical farming that would be preferable Uh, and you know there's even been startups in the last six years that just you know what if people just drank this like synthetic protein shake every day and that's what they ate you know maybe that would be a preferable way to do it Um, but what this is leading to is an economic inflection point for uh, the agricultural industry and and it's it's this, what right now, there's really no competitor for food. If you want beef, it's got to come from a cow. The cow has to be you know, uh, you know know grazed, it has to be raised, it has to be sent off to slaughter. Well, in the next few years, we're going to see the synthetic meat, and there's different types of synthetic meat, by the way. There's plant-based, there's the uh, Incredible Burger, which is trying to exactly replicate meat, and then there's also uh, just lab-grown muscle tissue, which there's some wild stuff out there. Uh, you know, c- can we make hybrid muscle tissue that you could eat? So maybe you could eat like a woolly mammoth steak because we have woolly mammoth DNA. So it's what we make woolly mammoth steak. Way. Yeah, saber tooth <laughs> tiger steaks. The, the future of like meat eating could get really interesting. Um, but what happens is that inflection point comes is one is, Consumers will sub out. They'll be like, "Oh, well, this is that you know, quote ethical. This is a more ethical way to eat," uh, and they'll eat that. And so demand will drop, which means prices will fall. As prices fall for cattle and other livestock, uh, that means the crop being produced for feed for those things it also has a demand drop and a price drop. And as that happens, maybe some of that demand can be, you know, maybe we can send food to other countries and trade with other countries. But but over time, that will diminish. And so then what you have is you get price pressure on the producer who's sitting on this land having trouble, you know, uh, making a profit year over year, maybe uh, government policy makes energy prices higher. And maybe it can do some things to make commodity prices lower. Uh, And so you have this squeeze, and then once that squeeze is on, the the risk that the agricultural industry is in is the only option that will have on the verge of bankruptcy is sell to the government or sell to another buyer. And that other buyer might be an activist landholder. They just may be buying for the purpose of taking it out of production.
0: Which is already happening and i you know ted turner did this a long time ago but there there are many people that are doing that right now that exact thing and so this is not like pie in the sky maybe kind of thing that's going to happen it already is happening and uh worth noting here that the person that gets squeezed is the small farm you know the small family ranch it's it's not going to be agribusiness that gets hurt here or at least not first maybe the alligator they'll get it
1: in the end they they have more scale so they can distribute the cost across you know more products but you look, another lie that I think farmers are being sold is like, oh, you know, after after this, after you know, you'll transition to being an energy farmer. You'll just do wind and solar. But the reality of that wind and solar transition for most farmers is it's really expensive. So you need the capital to make the transition. And then there's this other reality that as that technology improves and gets more efficient, especially solar, a lot of it's just going to be produced on the roof of you know, apartment buildings and on the roofs of homes. So the demand for, you know, solar energy being pumped in from a farm 200 miles from a city is actually going to be low. There'll probably be some winners in that, but not everybody's going to be a winner in that. Yeah. And, and, and then, also, that's why the utilities just wouldn't buy the land from the farmer.
0: <laughs> right. Why would they? <laughs> it just, and if, and for if, They're not
1: paying the markup.
0: Right. And and there's a, there's a whole bunch of things going on there too. I mean, obviously wind turbines kill all kinds of raptors and billions of birds a year and um I, for for someone like me who actually cares Definitely. about what things look like, uh those solar farms, they look hideous. They're just dis- they're disgusting. I I think that they're hideous. So, um mm-hmm. for an example, one time I was hunting down with my brother-in-law and I hadn't been home for a while. And we were glassing across this valley. And I said, what the heck? Who put a pond over there? And I mean, it looked like a great big pond. And he said, that's Mm -hmm. that solar farm, man. So, I mean, it's just weird stuff like that. It looked like this water out in the middle of the desert. And I know like most people would go, oh, who cares? But when something's off, it looks ugly. And it looked ugly to me. And that matters, you know? So, I guess I'm not going to take uh, aesthetic advice from people who pretend to be into brutalism. Um, and I'm also not going to apologize for caring about the way things look, because that's what they say on, you know, at least ostensibly their idea is that they want things to be beautiful. Yeah. And
1: no cool. one drives through, a you know, a, a piece of the, you know, prairie on the front range or in a Valley that's covered in windmills and says, Oh, would you look at that? It's so beautiful.
0: <laughs> right. <It's> so majestic. <laughs> Yeah. And these nerds try to make freaking um, cell towers look like trees, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and they just look like very, very ugly Dr. Seuss trees. So um beautification matters. I think it's important. And I think it's important at a very deep, um, you know, spiritual level, whether, you know, it doesn't have, even have to be religious, whatever, whatever, however you want to take that. I think that, that man has a connection to the earth. And that's what these uh authoritarians are feeling as you said earlier Mm -hmm. but they're such control freaks that they can't just appreciate beauty for what it is they have to try to improve upon it and i think that's like the root of all of this is that man can do it better you know that's their idea
1: Mm -hmm. and and we have to manage it on behalf of other men because they're not capable of making the right decisions for themselves on how to manage the resource
0: like Teddy Roosevelt said, uh, we must preserve these for those yet in the womb of time.
1: You know, yeah, Well, I mean, you kind of bring up a point with the uh, solar and the wind stuff, which is the whole point of protecting all this land is so it has still that aesthetic value to it, along with the wildlife and environmental value. And to the degree that we fill it with windmills or solar, like, OK, what, what, what was the point?
0: Right. And, and, you know, there's another thing at the very bottom of this that we. I do the same thing almost never talk about it because no one cares but how how are we going to pay for all of this because if you read through the nat geo article um listed in there a few times is oh we might use crp well uh crp has kind of been a half failing program for a decade now and everyone in the ag industry knows it now the great big agribusinesses are doing well off of it but the small farm Mm -hmm. guy he took a seven thousand dollar check a year because he needed it for you know part of his 400 acres and really he lost money over time on it you know so it's it's already a failing thing so how are you going to pay for that uh oh
1: i think there were two great technological innovations that probably have come out of the pandemic and one is mrna technology and regardless of where you stand on the vaccine mRNA technology itself is pretty like it will lead to things down the road uh you can commute you can make the human body a platform like and install apps on it you know essentially by communicating with your dna and the second is the rise of modern monetary theory which just like is this new uh you know psychological belief that policymakers have that you can spend indefinite amounts of money if you're the united states and it doesn't matter Um, but yeah so they operate a few billion dollars here a few billion dollars there we're spending money by the trillions who cares
0: yeah so they operate as if they believe that but then they fight wars all over the world to preserve the petrodollar so i also wonder how much they actually believe it you know what i mean
1: yeah, I, I mean, that's a great question. I'm not the the guy you want to talk to about monetary policy. Um, one of the things that I do see is as much as we hear, hey, there's no inflation, there's no inflation. Um, I, I'm seeing people making jokes now about like only billionaires can afford lumber <laughs> on, yeah. on Instagram. And then everybody knows food prices are up. It, it's just patently obvious. Now, the, the reality is, the, the people who will tell you there's no inflation are also the people who never look at what their grocery bill is, because it doesn't matter, they're high enough income. But the people who have to pay attention to the grocery bill completely understand food prices are up in practice, probably 10% over a year.
0: At, well, at least lumber's up. Lumber is up something like 150% in my area, and yeah. steel is up like 125. And that's just in, that's just in the last month. Uh, it's it's going to go higher. I have a friend that runs a, a global steel. I don't want I don't want to give him away, but anyway, he's involved in a global business that works in steel. And I texted him and asked him, and he said steel's up 125 percent at our level, and it's expected to stay there for the rest of the year. So I mean, this is not going away soon. And maybe it's not inflation because there is maybe it's not just inflation because there is a lot of. COVID restrictions. And then, you know, that lady plugged up the Suez Canal, which I've heard was not her fault, but, um, you know, the, the Suez Canal is plugged. There's just all kinds of things that are uh, factoring in here. But for the everyday person on the ground, it doesn't matter. All he sees is that it's $9 for a two by four. And like, for me, I just went to go buy wire the other day, and it's literally $100 more a roll than it had been a month ago, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's an 85-ish percent increase. It's just yeah. I mean, and that's brutal. part of the
1: input of the cost of farming that people don't understand exists. Yeah, like, oh, you buy some seeds and a tractor, and you drive around, <laughs> take your horse out, ride in circles around your cattle.
0: Yeah. Um, right. Well, and fuel. Uh, you know, uh, see, this is the, the urbanites don't care. Uh, energy,
1: one- is the, energy is the primary point of leverage that federal policy has over the, the ag industry and really most in, industrial production industries.
0: Yes. And and even just the everyday person's home. It, they might not see it because the larger companies, like let's say you're on, I don't know, Questar or Rocky Mountain Power or something like that. They're able to eat a little bit of it and spread it out so they don't feel it quite as much. But somebody like us that lives off of propane, um, you know, we feel those, you know, our, we're heated with wood and propane and we feel that cost immediately. And we're just one of several million Americans who live that way. But urbanites don't care about any of that. Uh, and it's also, you know, an hour and a half one way for groceries for us. So it cost me $60 to drive to town to get groceries, but they don't care. So we've got to find some way to get uh, other more, you know, I, I don't even really consider myself a, I, I'm mostly a politically homeless person, but people who are more uh, conservative minded type people need to start even the ones that are in those suburbs need to start paying attention more to fuel because fuel is energy itself. Energy is a better way to say it. Energy is, is the big thing. And even this 30 by 30 plan, that's just going to do nothing but drive energy, energy costs up even more higher than where they're mm-hmm. at right now. So uh, what would you, like, let's say, let's say this, let's you're you know, uh, God came down and put a gun to your head moment. You know um, I've heard that analogy before, but I don't know why God would need a gun, but you, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah lightning bolt yeah okay comes down with a lightning bolt starts poking you and he says how would you solve uh these problems if you were you know Stalin for a minute without the murderous part well i hope so unless i get to pick who you murder
1: yeah let, let me kind of adjust that a little and, and make a little more practical on, on like the, what do i think are the reality political uh, economic solutions available to farmers and ranchers the first thing is one of the messages that um, we typically will use because it pulls well, but I don't think it does what we need it to do is we'll use this concept of the American farmer or the American rancher, and we're trying to tie into this sense of like heritage and tradition. That message doesn't work well anymore because we have broken from the past in very meaningful ways. I mean, as a society, we are relitigating the civil rights movement, we are relitigating. Uh, you know the Cold War uh, through socialism, communism, we are relitigating uh, effectively the Civil War and we're relitigating uh, the constitutional founding itself. So we have this break with the past like we're, we're kind of unmoored from it at this point. So politically, w- what is the thing that you go after uh, in farming and ranching? You go after the cost piece. Uh, you go after the food supply. Um, availability of food and fear of not having food is is ingrained in the human mind at, at the deepest possible level. I mean, our brains at their core are effectively wired to recognize uh, things they can have sex with, things they can eat, and things that might kill them. And if you're speaking to one of those three things, you get people's attention right away. I mean, that's the reason that, like, the most successful things on social media and the internet fall into one of those three categories, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, talking about food food cost, food supply, secure our food supply. Remember last year when the shelves were empty, what that felt like? Uh, what would happen if food prices went up 15%, 20%? Uh, and when, when you're talking to, say, the conservative suburbanite, you can talk on that cost issue and move that person, but then you can also move further into the center left. You just talk about, imagine what this is going to do to lower-income families who already live in food deserts, who already can't afford good food. What if these prices go up? Like, who are we going to rely on to send us our food Is the United States? And then this backs in to the, the message on the synthetic meat on the micro farming or the vertical farming, which is this. Like, th- th- this stuff is great. It, it may have a role in our food supply. Consumers will decide that. But like th- when you add that level of efficiency, you, you dramatically decrease the level of resiliency in our food supply. What happens if a foreign adversary hacks our, you know, our artificial meat production plants uh, and poisons them or takes them offline um, and we don't have, you know, this other capacity, uh, you know, for vertical farming, same thing, because that will eventually just be mostly automated. What what happens if that gets hacked? And so we 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 want to talk about resiliency and we want to talk about the importance of maintaining the food supply and food cost. And that's where I'd go out at a practical level. If you made me like the Stalin of agricultural uh, interest group strategy in the United States, that's where I'd go with it.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. So how do we how do we get you to be that guy? <laughs> because, like right now, I don't see that person. Um, you know, I get all the journals and magazines. There's not and- that
1: person on on the right. There's not that person on any issue right now. The 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 right. Anybody who isn't very intensely progressive um it is scattered that the ranks are broken everybody's you know hiding out hoping they get passed up hoping things change that person doesn't exist in any any domain uh if you're you know center right to conservative
0: right and i think a reason that that might be is that the the left of center everyone left of center those sort of politicians figured out a long time ago that if you ran entitlements through USDA that it would have to be in the farm bill and mm-hmm. as long as all it's <laughs> yeah. like they, they get to yeah. hold that you know sort of sort of damocles over our uh, mm-hmm. our head all of the time um i i think i may have talked about this on a podcast before but i'll just briefly reiterate i was working with a certain interest group and i was spending time on the hill with uh, about 15 other people in a room trying to put together what we wanted to be in that farm bill. And I will bet you 60% of the stuff that we had to sit through and go through was entitlements before we got to anything Mm -hmm. ag or outdoor related. So until we figure out I I shouldn't say until it would be wise to get someone with a voice uh, on the right, and it would have to be someone who and we don't even have this person that's the problem. But someone who was at least respected maybe even well yeah i I was gonna say mansion but even mansion doesn't work you know let me throw
1: something that the left (laughs) understands implicitly that they're brilliant at that the right has never been able to do the left understands coalition building and solidarity at a core level and on the right we sometimes make fun of the left has like these weird coalitions of like never-ending acronyms but in, in our society today, where everybody's kind of disjointed and the internet is what dominates and network structures are what works. These coalitions and these coalition solidarities are important, right? Like, why is LGBTQIA+, why are those all lumped into the same thing, even though they're very, very different? Um, it's because that the activist on the left figured out that if you you keep those people in a coalition, you have a lot more leverage. So then what what is the agricultural coalition and how would you how would you organize it? So what you do is you'd want to have a coalition of ranchers, of farmers, of hunting uh, and fishing, of anglers. You have to bring the recreational side into it, because if you don't bring in the hook and bullet side, you simply don't have the the constituency size you need to make a difference uh, in electoral and in democratic politics. Um, Now, what is interesting to me is that, uh, you know, most farmers and ranchers are hunters, but a lot of um, hunters aren't necessarily involved in ag and aren't necessarily supportive of ag. And by the way, in that coalition, you could also potentially include mining and extraction, although it makes the coalition more vulnerable to being wedged. Uh, which is, you know, you you push on an issue of like, oh, they want to mine, you know, this area, but that's some great elk hunting area. And so you split maybe the hunting people from the mining people consideration. Now, the way you organize this is effectively what what the left does, you know, now for the last year is they just have Zoom calls. They just get everybody on a Zoom call. Uh, they have a presentation of all these groups, and then they just go over messaging. Hey, what what should we say? What should we do? Should we all put out a statement at the same time? Who who can get on CNN today? Who can do these podcasts? And then they just organize it like that, and that's what they've done for the last year. And before that, they would have in-person meetings and conference calls and things. And so getting everybody on the same page and moving forward, and this solidarity idea that um, if you're a hunter or fisherman, something that threatens uh, a farmer or rancher, eventually is going to come for you. Because those, those interests that are, that are pressing um, farmers and ranchers, they don't see hunting and fishing as something morally different. It's just, it's just further down the incremental scale uh, than, say, you know, farming or ranching, where it's easier to have a big bad guy you, you can attack. But you see it in the hunting world. like You see blow-ups when people post grip-and-grin pictures, or you, know, you have a poacher that just does some stupid, unexcusable thing and, and gets caught, and that makes the news. Uh, but build, building the coalition there. And then secondly, you have to wedge the opposition's coalition. And, and the opposition's coalition has a, a problem emerging, and it's between, it's between their tech wing uh, and their environmental wing. The past 20 years, that tech world, where all the money comes from, the environmental world, have been lockstep in line. We're going to hit a position soon because we're moving from this world of tech does everything uh, in bits to tech does a lot more things than atoms. So think about space launches, think about electric cars, think about the rare earth metals needed for devices. And so the tech people increasingly are going to need natural resources to do what they want to do, specifically rare earth element mining. And so you can use the tech the tech wings and the corporate wings need for those natural resources has a wedge issue against the environmental movement in that world. And you can crack their coalition while potentially building your coalition larger.
0: I think that's bright. Um, and there actually may be space for that. There, There are some hunting organizations that are pretty friendly to ag, but the ones that are the loudest are, are really not, um, or, or, or they may pretend to be, but they're really not. I don't want to call any one out specifically, but there are some people that I really like that have television shows and this kind of thing. And they're kind of on the left side of center and they are not particularly friendly to, um, ag. They, they may even see themselves as if they are, but they're really not. Um, so it'd be great to find the right person to message that. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, and it, I don't well, know, maybe
1: he not be a person, right? Yeah, no, no, it I understand not, what you're saying. I, and, yeah. and I'm thinking of
0: groups like there's. I I just don't want to say any specific group. I I mm-hmm. so I used to be involved in in this thing. And in fact, let me give you an example. I was at a rendezvous in Missoula, and I was part. Well, I was sitting in on this panel. I was invited to. I wasn't on the panel, but I was invited to be in in the room, the discussion room for this panel, and they went through this big long ethics thing and some of it was interesting and honestly some of it was like lots of other ethical discussions was just philosophical trash i I mean none of just pie in the sky type stuff well a, a man stood up he was a cpa and he he stood up and asked what sounded to me like a very reasonable question he said one of the things that we need to accept as a group here as hunters and anglers in this group is that hunting and angling is a leisure activity and if we don't take if we don't see that part we will eventually lose was what he said and the entire panel went on with platitudes about how hunting and angling are lifestyles and all this but he was right there there is no such thing as an angling lifestyle short of you're a fishing guide or whatever you know mm-hmm. there are very very few people who actually hunt I'm a hunting guide very few people actually make that into a lifestyle so the people who are the loudest think like these the people that were on that panel they they're sort of in they seem to be sort of in the esoterics and they're not you know they're they're not oh, being the very
1: community always the fly fisherman
0: <laughs> right yeah every book is a freaking poem yeah. <laughs> like, and i i i love to teach some of those books and you know there's actually you know what you just brought made me think of something a couple of years ago i think it was the university of montana did a study on uh, catch and release angling and what they found was something like 30 percent of the fish that were released back into a a river die so if the those people look down their nose at the guy who's got you know the grandpa who's got his three uh, kids excuse me three grandkids with him dunking worms and then you know taking their rainbows home and eating them they're like i can't believe you'd take those six fish out meanwhile he Mm -hmm. just hooked 100 and killed 30 of them he just doesn't know that he did it you know and i think that's kind of a uh almost a perfect analogy of progressivism
1: and that a great metaphor of the Our moral metaphor, issue of people being separated from their from their food right like yes uh because you didn't kill it you did you, you didn't kill it to eat it that you didn't kill it and that somebody didn't have to kill it uh but that metaphor just reminded me of that
0: yeah and and also it's a it's a much more it's a a way worse death for sure you know the the old guy takes the fish out and whacks its head on a rock and then sticks it in a a cooler or whatever and then goes home and fries it and you know these guys (laughs) stick it back in there where it effectively drowns or dies of some disease or whatever you know i mean it's 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 a much more brutal death as well
1: so yeah let me give you the that the, the how how hunting uh dies scenario it, it's this the the best moral defense being made of hunting is it, it's the meat eater defense right it's the yeah. Stephen Rail defense like this is the most pure way to acquire protein to feed your family yeah. lives a natural life in these natural places it's an experience to go get it we support conservation and then it's death is quick and it becomes meat on the table and that's you know a, you know that that's the purest way to get meat mm-hmm. there's a world that's coming where the response to like you know the steven ranella by the way I, i'm a fantasy morel like Me the too. reason yeah. i i got i got a long story uh, steven Ranella is the reason i used to be a like a vegetarian kind of had a friend who hunted got into ranella ranella made the case i started hunting boom um very
0: cool
1: is once you can get artificial meat, that argument goes away. Like, what, why did you need to go shoot that that doe to get the meat? Why did you need to go shoot that elk to get the meat? You can just get this artificial meat. No, nothing has to die. That animal could have lived longer. Uh, you know, we 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 don't need people to manage the populations anymore because we've reintroduced meaningful numbers of predators to these ecosystems. So really you're just competing with another part of the ecosystem when you don't need to do that. Um, and then pretty quickly, you know, all hunting effectively becomes, quote, trophy hunting, end quote, because you don't need the meat. Like, sure, right. you took the meat, but you didn't need it. Could have gotten it, you know, lab grown meat. And I think that is where this idea of that hunting and fishing are going to go out and be their own things and try to make friends um you know elsewhere from you know from maybe the ag community or other people who use natural resources which is what we're talking about is using natural resources i i think they end up being kind of they're going to get let, left behind they're kind of useful right now but in 10 15 years they'll get crushed
0: yes i absolutely agree and, and we've we've already seen the way that they're willing to leverage the federal government and they the the left is much better than the right at this they think on long-term time scales so when whenever someone says something like do you really believe that wolves were reintroduced to end hunting in the rocky mountains you know um i always kind of get the doe in the eyes look and like shrug i mean i don't know but probably because i i tend to think that the 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 underlying instinct on the left is nefarious. I just, I, you know, for lack of a better word, I, I do. I tend to think that. So,
1: you know, does the average actor it's think mixture, that right? It's a mixture of naive and nefarious, <laughs> right? Yes. So most Colorado voters are like, oh, wolves are so cool, but none of them have seen like the back porch video of like a pack of wolves ripping apart a family's dogs. Right, they they don't right. they don't want that on right. the front range. We're gonna we're gonna put that over in western Colorado. But we don't want that on the front range. <laughs> put those wolves out there. They're cool. Um, I, I so, actually
0: joked about how when they when they do that wolf introduction, that my family members in Utah should gather their friends and go spend a weekend on the border of Utah and yeah. Idaho or Utah and Colorado just shooting wolves. You know, just to yeah, make this the is case.
1: The thing that people outside of 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 the ag world don't understand is the complex relationship between. Uh, you know, ranchers and predators. Um, So you have the naive part that's just like, oh, wolves are cool, but in Colorado, what what will the wolves do? Okay, the wolves will pressure the elk population 100%. Um, Colorado is also flooded with pack and pedal, uh, you know, more so than hook and bullet most of the year. And so if you have these pressured elk populations, uh, as you have people moving through their ecosystems, that's going to put more pressure on the elk populations. Um, if you want to reduce the pressure on elk populations, do you regulate more of the pack and pedal crowd or do you regulate more of the hook and bullet crowd? Well, the pack and pedal crowd is larger, so you probably regulate them less and you probably regulate the hook and bullet crowd a little more. Maybe you close off areas. Maybe you have um, you know, areas that just can't be hunted or, or you reduce seasons. Um, You take away the hunter's argument that they manage populations again because there's natural predators now. Um, And so you've succeeded in reducing the net amount of hunting going on.
0: Yes. And and there's there's two other really important factors. Well, actually, there's three important factors going on there. Um, One. Uh, the the pack and pedal crowd has a lot more funding from North Face, Patagonia, these kinds of things. Hunting hunting and angling companies are are not large. I know people think that they are, but they're not. They're they're it's a very small industry in comparison. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot less money. And I know that, you know, you have Pittman Roberts and that kind of stuff, but it's still, it's they just don't have the money. And then two, um hunting and fishing are already heavily regulated, whereas packing and you know, pack and pedal isn't you know, like pack and pedal for anybody who doesn't know, he's talking about hiking and mountain biking and those kinds of things. Um, Those are nowhere near as regulated. So it would look a lot more intrusive or invasive rather to, you know, to add a bunch of new regulations to that kind of thing. And then three, you look at what we've done to the elk. And I bring this up anytime the discussion comes up on Twitter, but it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's not a good place for a discussion, but I try. Uh, The way, the way, Elk populations work is right now they summer in the mountains. They're they're naturally for the most part a prairie animal. They, they've they've been able to adapt to living in the mountains in the summer, but they still need to winter on those uh sagebrush benches. They'll you know they'll browse all winter and and you know make it well suburban sprawls in the and valley
1: just north of Jackson.
0: <laughs> yes, right. Um, So that works up here, but take somewhere like the front range in Colorado where it doesn't, you know, now you have suburban encroachment um, all over that entire front range. So their winter range is gone. And then you have ski resorts up in those mountains that are putting pressure on those animals when they're, they're very weakest. They're just coming out of the rut. The bulls are, and after the rut bulls go high, they go back to like 9,500 feet or so roughly eight to thousand, eight to nine to 10,000 feet is where they'll go after the rut. And those things are worn out and tired and probably injured from fighting over a lady somewhere. They're, they're at their very weakest. And ski resorts are where they have to go. Well, um, you start making snow early you know, because you got to get that ski resort money. So you have an app
1: open by, uh, by Thanksgiving,
0: Thanksgiving. Exactly. So you have an ab, a completely abnormal amount of snow as far as in, in terms of duration, you have more snow for longer. Um, and they, they really have nowhere to go to winter. And then the, the cows on the winter range, the cow elk, they're packing calves. Well, the the more pressure you put on them, say January to February, um, the more calves are going to slough off, and the faster the herd will reduce. Well, what do you think elk or, or excuse me wolves are going to do to that area? They like now you have these elk, and I I know they're not putting them on the front range, but just in theory here. Um, now you have these elk that are pinned in deep snow up high for. You know virtually all winter when they're at their very weakest and elk punch through the snow and wolves don't so the wolves are just going to destroy that elk herd That's a whole buffet. yes and they're getting pressured at every angle so you it's if you're trying to make the moral case uh which they they often do um you're gonna have to explain to me how <laughs> you know how any of that fact you know you're gonna have to add all of that into your equation before i'm willing to listen to you and they never seem to um, do you know what I
1: mean? Cool. <laughs> yeah. It, and, and look, You even see this right now. I think in parts of Colorado, they were even um, limiting uh, shed hunting. So limiting people walking around looking for antlers because it was pressuring the elk, causing them to move in a time of year where there was no food and they're already worn down. Right. So. Um, Which I'm not yeah, opposed look, to, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good idea because I think you're managing the resource and the highest and best use of the resource, in my opinion, would be for the, um, you know, for the hunter who's bought the tag and is supporting conservation of the resource. And so managing the resource for the hunter instead of for the the shed hunters, probably where I would lean on a policy directive. I agree. And awesome.
0: I got to throw, throw this in there just because it's another perfect uh, metaphor for how the, the left is uh, for, for how they see the world and how the world is in practicality or in reality. Rather, Um it used to be when I was a kid, you gather those horns up and sell them to a horn buyer because they would ship them to China for, you know, um phallus pills or whatever <laughs> you really want to say that. <laughs> um And now. They're, so back then it was like $12 a pound you could get. We used to call them brown gold because you could make so much money off of those things, just riding your horse around, picking them up. I mean, I had buddies in high school that bought brand new pickup trucks, just picking up elk and deer horns. Um And now they sell for roughly $18 a pound and they're being sold as dog chews to suburban, you know, antler, houses. Antler,
1: um- yeah, it's for the antler decor, right? You gotta have that antler chandelier in your one point five million dollar uh, resort townhouse.
0: Sure, exactly. And you know, fufu has gotta have you know fancy little all natural uh, thing to chew on, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So they these these very same people that would look down on the you know the redneck with a six pack of Bud Light in his truck that's walking around you know glassing for horns in you know, March, um, they would look at him like he was some Bubba Fudd, you know, moron, and it's really them that he's working for, and they just don't even know it because they, they're they like yeah. incapable of putting two and two together.
1: Yeah, because they're just not, they that part of the world is veiled from them. Right. And this like, I think this is one of the biggest divides in American society is the part of our society which is engaged in things with, with which like the... The consequence of what they do and the feedback are tightly linked. So truck driver, if he steers the wheel a little too far left or a little too far right, he starts to go off the road. Feedback is immediate, consequence very high. Um, look, candidly, my job, the link between consequence and feedback is pretty loose. Like I could make a really bad client decision and it might be months or years before the feedback happens. Um And I think that is, and when you look at the type of people that tend to now lean left in our society and lean right, that is one of the big worldview divides is an understanding of the relationship between action and result. Yeah. Yeah. They're not even, they understand, it's just, they don't feel it. It's not a tangible thing that action directly leads to, to a result outside of maybe like a video game.
0: Yeah. I wonder about that too. It, it, maybe it's fundamentally that they just don't care. Uh, and I think you could make the case for that because all of this information is readily available to anyone. I'm an idiot horse trainer in Idaho and I know some of this stuff and you know, they don't, so they can't exactly be going out of their way to look for it. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. But I've, I've worked in, um, you know, politics for a lot of my career and, and like there are very few informed voters. People go, very rarely out of their way to find information. Uh, So so much of the way we view the world is like culturally or socially ingrained. And that's candidly is why I think culture is so important that if you lose the culture, you, you lose the operating system by which people make decisions and view the world. And that's what has happened effectively to conservatives over the last 30 years is they just focused on growing the GDP, let didn't do anything in the culture. The left worked very hard, uh, for decades to be influential in the culture. Uh, and now they influence every aspect of the culture. And therefore, their their ideology is the basic operating system that the United States runs on, or at least is the 50, you know, plus point zero one percent ideology.
0: Man, you, you just put that so well. That was, I mean, that is exactly the problem. And we're, unfortunately, we're running out of time here. Can we get you back on one of these days to talk about a lot more of this stuff? Because that was great. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Happy to. OK,
0: thanks, Joe. Can you tell everybody where to find
1: you? Sure. B- best place to find me is Twitter at Joe P. Clements uh, or uh, if you have a, um, you know, question or, you know, are working on an issue. Um, our company's website is uh, choose SDS, like chooses and select and letter Sam Donald Sam dot com. Uh, and there's a form there. Uh, and if you have something interesting, I'm usually happy to hear about. Not happy, I, I enjoy hearing people with like interesting uh, policy issues or like public uh, policy problems. Um, but best way is at Joe P Clements on Twitter.
0: Awesome, go read his Twitter, folks. He's, he's I'm I'm not just saying this. He's one of the smartest guys I've started following on Twitter just recently. So go check his stuff yeah, out. Yeah, risk
1: for me. Like, that's one of the things. Um, I get crap about this all the time at my company. It is a risk for me to be tweeting under my name. Like I have a company, we have clients, like we're we're not a purely ideological company. Um, So appreciate the Twitter follow.
0: (laughs) Well, and I think you do a good job walking the line on there and saying, uh, putting those spicy takes behind, you know, a veil of intelligence,
1: which is a skill that I don't have. So. um, Well, look, my my goal is to persuade, right? Like what we have to do is win back the culture and to win back the culture. There's a role for the bomb throwers. Of which, like, I wish I was more of, but there's a lot of people who are way better than me at it. Like, I I am much better suited for, like, here's a take, like, and hopefully it's thoughtful enough that it creates hesitation um, in somebody who maybe has an opposite viewpoint.
0: That's awesome. I think you're great. I really do, man. Thank you so much for coming on. I apologize for having to end it abruptly. We're just, yeah, no problem. Hitting that uh, time. So, all right. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Joe P. Clements on Twitter. Go follow him, everybody. All right, thank you, Braxton. Yep, you betcha. There you go. I promise you, I'd cover thirty thirty on this show, and we're gonna do it again eventually, maybe in a little more depth as information comes out. But I'm as I'm sure you guys know, a lot of vagary is going on in politics right now. I guess it always has, but it seems to be even worse right now. So we're doing our best with what we have right now, and whenever more comes out on this thirty by thirty thing, we will cover it again. So obligatory hustle, please leave us a, a review check and see if yours is there i don't even know how you do that but leave us another one just in case because they really help us and uh anyway i want to tell y'all i appreciate you thank you have a good weekend